Greetings and welcome to GradCast, the official radio and podcast show of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. My name is Yiman Chen. I'll be one of your hosts today. And joining me is... Ariel Frame, your beloved co-host. And our guest today on the show is Danika Faka. How are you? I'm great. How are you guys? Great. Excellent. Awesome. Just, you know, trying to keep healthy. Speaking of healthy, I hear you're a PhD student in the uh, Department of Health and Information Science at the Faculty of Information and Media Studies. What a segue. Sure am. <laughs> right? Always topical. Real always subtle. Always smooth. Yeah. So, Danika, can you tell me, what is health information science? It's a good question. We're still trying to figure it out. Um, really? A, yeah. It's a very interdisciplinary field. Um, so you're combining health sciences with also information sciences, so the ways people seek out information, how information may change their behavior. Um, the program itself at Western is housed under FIMS. Right. I mean, you and I are neighbors on the fourth floor. Um, and it's cross-listed between the Faculty of Health Sciences and information mm -hmm. and media studies. So you get a bit of everything um, with us, which can be really fun. So maybe it's naive of me, but the first thing I thought of, I was like, so like WebMD? <laughs> yes. Information and, Absolutely. and health, right? Web 1.0. Yeah, that's kind of where we... Web 1.0. So what is... Wait, yeah. maybe elaborate on that. So okay. is this related to something you do? Does WebMD... Okay, so WebMD, web think of it as just like a website, right? Uh -huh. So when the internet was first created, we have what we term it as Web 1.0, where users just use the internet to access information and resources, okay? So mm -hmm. like 90s, early 2000s, and then mid 2000s, we get this break into web 2.0, which is the creation of social media and social networks and things like that. So users aren't okay. just information consumers, now we're information producers too. Oh. So things get a little complicated. Oh, okay. I see, mm -hmm. like prosumers. Prosumers, yeah. Right, right. Great term, what a media. Right, so when my consuming. mom sends me a Facebook post of one of her friends saying something about their health and like oh like this is a thing now that's like that's a web 2.0 kind of thing yeah mm, we okay. communicate and talk about our health in so many ways now and we also consume information about our health in so many different ways um again think of websites think of social media and think about the introduction of biosensors fitbit technology suddenly we have vast amounts of data that are being generated for us that are supposed to tell us something about our health or how we're feeling inside, um, what's working, what's not, things okay. like that. Yeah. So, so, so what kind of what kind of questions does your work ask? Uh, so my work specifically is, let's think about health information science and what I'm going to call digital technology, which is very broad. Mm -hmm. um, but specifically for me, I think I'm going to focus in on social media and children, which is, again, a very broadly defined category. But those three intersect in what we can now call contemporary childhood. You look in any waiting room or supermarket and kids are on the smartphones mm -hmm. or the tablets doing whatever, right? Okay. And so you're focusing on the kids on the smartphone or the tablet mm -hmm. accessing health information on the Internet? Yes. On Web so, 2.0. On Web 2.0. On Web 2.0. Well, and 2, right? They can go to WebMD. Yeah, they can. Sure. But she said social media, which... It, oh, that's a good which point. Was right. Web 2.0, yeah. Okay. So a nice umbrella term for that is um, digital health literacy. So 
in order to engage in a web 2.0 space as a user, you need certain competencies or what we're going to call literacies to mm -hmm. enact such behaviors or information seeking ways effectively, right? Um, and when it comes to kids, they model so much of their behavior on people around them, their parents, their teachers, their siblings, their friends. Um, but it's not always straightforward how they come to learn how to use a tech or how that piece of tech may give them health information and they may not know how to respond or what to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a much more narrow focus of that part of my research that I'm hoping to get to once comps are over. <laughs> <laughs> Knock on wood, of course. Yes. Uh, so what sort of health information um, are kids looking up these days? I mean, I'll give an example of yeah. if you go into the Apple App Store mm -hmm. and you look at health and fitness apps for kids, hmm. we begin with a lot that are focused on nutritional literacy, so good and bad food, already setting up that good and evil kind of dichotomy with your approach to nourishing your body. Okay. Also, um, physical activities, so what are some things to keep active? Um, and then there's also been a lot of apps that have recently come out that talk about mindfulness and meditation mm. and sleep. So uh, taking care of yourself in that way. Um, and again, that very idea of taking care of yourself is looking after your health. Health is a state of overall well-being. There's so many different things that we do that contribute to our, our health state, right? Um, so the App Store, if you're ever curious, just take a, take a ponder. It's quite interesting. You know, um, this strikes me as a very like individualistic sort of thing for to exist mm -hmm. as it always kind of struck me as when when mindfulness became a, a thing uh i was i found it quite compelling that um that it has some impact and it truly is something and it's not just sitting quietly it's not just meditation uh, not just meditation right. and it's not oh it's a, and similar to a meditation but it's not nothing well, a lot of people thought no this is hocus pocus it's really nothing and not actually doing anything um, so although it is compelling and adults at least, sure, they can do all these things with these apps. Uh, but the idea behind it, I mean, it seems to me like the idea is if you have a problem in life, it's your, the impetus is entirely on you to fix it. And it's really not anyone else's issue. And if, if, if you continue to have a problem, then you just need to work harder. And it's not, not because anyone else did anything wrong. Mm -hmm. um, whereas we all know there's societal factors that, could, that, that that are involved, right? I mean, you happen to be somewhere where your water is dirty and you're like, I'm upset because I don't have clean drinking water. You could be mindful all day and your water's not going to get any cleaner. Yeah, but a positive attitude, Ariel. So, yeah. so I understand that, that there's some value in these things, in these individual, like, you need to work harder. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Yeah. <laughs> okay, to an extent, fine. I understand. And I get that. I totally get the argument for adults, but... Is it pushing it to make kids take that into their own hands? Like maybe maybe this is something that parents should be involved in and adults should be helping kids do and not just being like, here's an app, kid. Mm -hmm. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps and follow all these apps. Eat healthy. Yeah. I think there's um, there's a distinction to be made between the app as a one-size-fits-all solution and mm -hmm. the app as an aid in a network of things that will help whether it's an adult or a child mm. be um, more healthy or just in a better position overall right um, and that's also the danger I feel too of just all there's an app for everything the saying goes right um, it shouldn't just be a fix because again these apps are created by 
certain people with certain end goals and certain users in mind and they don't work for everybody and they shouldn't be you know in lieu of community support parental support education support like you said all these societal institutions and structures that still have responsibility to people right um and that's just something that i just find interesting the more we get into uh new tech new apps the internet of things how technology can do so much for you you know you get into that question of is it a good thing or a bad thing I don't think there's a right answer. I think we're just in a gray area and we kind of have to figure out what works best in certain contexts. Well, sort of following along there, um, what is your interest in uh, children in particular? Do they use these technologies, these apps in a different way from say RL or I? So that's a great question. Um, One of the things that at least I'm priding myself on my doctoral research is Uh, In Canada and around the globe, research that looks into digital tech and kids and their health really cuts off at about age eight. Hmm. So when we're asking these questions, do kids use tech differently than adults? There's a lot of literature out there on teens, um, pre-adolescence, we'll call them. So they're making that transition from elementary school to a high school context. older elementary kids. But again, when we start getting into those younger years, there's a lot of hesitancy towards that. And again, there could be various factors as to why that's the case, but we don't know right now. Um, So I'm interested in the younger demographic. It's a gap in the literature, but also to be completely honest, I was a kid that grew up in the 90s and I had a childhood that was free of Instagram and Mm -hmm. Snapchat. And I kind of lament for the kids nowadays, <laughs> like, what is it like to grow up in this media tech saturated world? Like, I'm just genuinely fascinated by it. Well, how, how do uh, how do kids, um, you know, if, if you're looking at kids younger than eight and some of them are still sort of learning to communicate at all, let alone on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And if they're like four and five, they don't necessarily know really well how to read or to write. And if they're engaging on social media or, or Web 2.0, they, they mm-hmm. have to input somehow. I mean, are, are there six-year-olds that are, like, posting Instagram selfies or something? So um, I was involved in a pilot study about two years ago. And our age demographic, just a year higher, but we looked at seven to ten-year-olds. We were asking them their social media activity. Um through some semi-structured interviews and they were posting videos and pictures of themselves. Um, One of the things to keep in mind, it's not just uh, the content itself, but the way in which you actually will um, upload content. A lot of it is due to touchscreen technology. It's a very intuitive interface, Um, especially again, if we follow this thread that kids really model a lot of their behavior off of observation and what they see and experience. There's work coming out that are just suggesting that two and three year olds know how to touch or swipe on a tablet just by action watching and things like that. Right. Um, So, again, the extent to which they understand the nuance of it is a good question. But procedurally, they're there. They're getting there Um, and understanding how and why and what impacts this will have, not just physiologically, but cognitively and their development is I don't know. Those are really rich research questions. Hmm. So, so is it just the question of like engaging in this type of uh, tool 
a touchscreen device uh, that has connection to uh, a web 2.0, mm-hmm. how this changes their development internally, or is it also what risks uh, they're putting themselves out there too? If they're um, posting something on social media and someone then replies to them with another video of themselves and they see it, um, is that really the, is it necessarily the appropriate thing for them to see and engage with? Is that is that part of your um, study? Yeah, so um, the pilot study just asked uh, very um, general questions like that. We didn't really get into anything specific, like responding to other people. Um, but that's something that I'm definitely interested in with my doctoral work. So that kind of falls under um, what we could call the bracket of computer literacy um, as a very, very broad definition of what it means to engage with digital technology. Um because again, there's so much packed into that one example, not just procedural literacy of how to use the device, but um, maybe cultural literacy. So depending on what cultural context you're in, certain responses may be more acceptable or just cool or things like that than others. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have a what I would call a right answer for that. It's very much an open-ended question. I hope I could answer that in a couple of years, but yeah. Well, so you said you were part of the study two years ago. Yes. Has this been sort of a long-standing interest of yours? Um, and is, is this why you chose to eventually pursue this degree in HIS? So, yes. I'm going to call it a slow-burning interest. Okay. Uh, yeah, slow-burning. Uh, so I started my undergrad at Western in 2012 in mm-hmm. English literature and criminology because I was convinced that I was going to be a lawyer and do Mm. the public good thing. Um, Throughout my undergrad, I ended up volunteering with a health promotion program that ran out of the Faculty of Health Sciences. Uh, Shout out to Learning It Together. They should be 13 years strong now. Um, But they worked with children in the greater London area in grades one to three on health promotion behavior and activities. And I loved it. Um, So the faculty supervisor of that volunteering program, Dr. Lori Dinell, uh, she's under the Faculty of Nursing, is now my current supervisor, mm-hmm. and she was the one who started this pilot work. So Lori and I met in a very, um, I'm just going to call it a non-traditional context, because I <laughs> met her as a volunteer in a completely different program. Right. Um, and at that point in the program, um, I was on the executive team, and we had some volunteers coming up to us asking what do I do if my eight-year-old like little buddy, who was a mentoring program, asked to add me on Facebook? What's the appropriate response? And mm-hmm. we were kind of saying to ourselves, this is really interesting. This was probably back in 2013. Um, you know, are people looking into this? What is the appropriate response? And there was not much out in the literature. So then we kind of brought this to Lori um, and she was very interested in it. And that was it. Uh, ever since then, she's kind of been pursuing work with kids in digital tech, but the pilot study was very much um, birthed out of this experience with learning it together. Hmm. And that you've been working with her ever since? Yes. Okay. Yeah. We have a longstanding relationship, which is um, a gift, I'm going to call it. She's not just my supervisor, but a mentor, but she wears many hats, and I have much respect for her. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So the the shift from um, English yes. into health and information science, I mean, seems like a rather big jump. Huge jump. Yeah? yeah. How does that 
you know, how has that been for you? It's been interesting. Um, one of the things that I will always say my English degree did for me was give me the skills to write to any kind of audience. Hmm. And I think that that's an asset that a lot of us in grad school are either um, trained from you know, the undergraduate level to be a good writer, or that's maybe something secondary. Maybe you're more research driven and you're in a lab and you're doing more um, technical work with things and people. Um, so English also got me to start asking a lot of really big critical questions, mm -hmm. which now being in a doctoral program, it's like, oh yeah, doctor of philosophy, I get it. We're asking big questions. We're trying to get some answers in whatever way we feel is appropriate in our given discipline. Um, but making the jump from the humanities to the sciences was interesting because I felt like both disciplines are talking about the same thing, just using different terms and language. So for an example, um, in English, we do this thing where we'll read a text and we'll close read it. So we'll pay attention to the words being used, punctuation, and that usually results in writing in the margins about observations and things that you're noticing. And maybe there's certain ideas that keep coming up mm -hmm. over and over again that you get excited about. I come into the sciences and now this is called coding, um, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting. I was like, what do you mean we're coding? They're like, oh, you're looking for emergent themes. And in my small-minded brain, I was like, oh, we're looking for like patterns. My mm -hmm. prof is like, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. I'm like, okay, that's weird. So I've been coding over in the humanities and I just didn't know it, right? Um, so funny instances like that where I can appreciate from the science perspective, like how things work in this discipline um, and then how they work over in the humanities. So it was a bridge to cross, but it wasn't an impossible bridge. And I hope that that doesn't sound arrogant. I truly don't mean it to sound arrogant. It's just when you get down to the brass tacks of skill sets and asking questions, I feel like that's what we're all doing as doctoral students. We just have different topics and different aims that we want to pursue. You just got to find the areas that sort of intersect or cross over. Absolutely. Like that. Right. Well, you know, um, I've, I've found from talking to people from different departments doing PhD in totally different uh, fields that the programs vary a lot uh, in their structure. So mm -hmm. what, what are you required to do? Some have more classes, some have less, some have more checkpoints you need to go through, more hoops to jump through, and some have less. Um, is your program um, more, uh, do you have any courses, or how, how different was it uh, from your expectation coming from, from English? So uh as Lori would put it, I had some catching up to do, which was fine. Um, <laughs> most of my courses, uh, well, they were all completed in my first year, but it was just getting uh, statistics under my belt and, you know, formal qualitative methodology courses down. Um, so it was more of how to do the research, not necessarily, you know, taking a course on how to critically think better, because I already just came to the program with a bunch of questions that I knew I wanted to tackle. Um, so for HIS, typically you finish your courses in your first year. There may be a bit of carryover. Um, the second year is, again, a portion devoted to your comprehensive exam. And then you are on your merry way to complete your research until so, you're, you're finished. Yeah. So a good chunk of the research is actually like focused on towards the end. Is that right? 
uh, in terms of way like the program is set up, like you'll start your independent research as a doctoral student once you're through your comprehensive exam. So the latter two years of your degree, essentially, if we're looking at the four year PhD funding model. Right. Yeah. No, there was air quotes there that nobody nobody saw, but there were air quotes. <laughs> there, there were somewhere. air quotes. Yes. <laughs> so um, on the note of com- comprehensive exams. Yes. You earlier said, you know, something about comps coming up. Yes. Comps being comprehensive exams, right? Yes. So what are comps like uh, for your program specifically and um, how, what are you doing now to like prepare for it? Okay. Um, so in HIS, we recently switched our comprehensive exam model, which I'm excited about, or at least it gives you a different option of how to do this comprehensive exam thing. Uh, so the model I'm following is a proposal of the dissertation, looking at about 40 or 50 pages. So identifying your research question, giving some background literature review on your topic and chosen methodology of how you want to answer the question. And it really gets you into the headspace of what you want your research to accomplish. Whereas the previous comps model, and I know for some people, because of um, just being in the English department, um, how some humanities comprehensive exam works is um, the disciplines are, again, not as interdisciplinary. They're more defined. They have canons. They have certain texts that define the field. Um, So they will be studying off of a reading list and then given some kind of question or, you know, essay request that they have to write that they'll then be um, given like a certain time frame to write. Um, It'll be reviewed by their comprehensive exam committee, and then they'll have to do an oral defense with that. So for mine, it's writing the proposal, um, getting that vetted by my committee, and then an oral defense as well, just to justify why this topic, why this methodology, why this research question. And then once you're past that, you're on your own. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, back in the day, uh, I did that reading list plus one week of fun, fun writing times whole thing. Yeah, that was the old uh, HIS comps model as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, at this point, I look back fondly. Do uh, you? At that time, because I have a very poor memory, and I think I've convinced myself that it was uh, a really interesting, useful, fun experience in order to not get PTSD or something like that. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm, I'm glad they've changed the process to something that you know, sounds like it might be more useful, more practical uh, for your sort of degree progression. I think it's a more pragmatic approach, at least if it gets you asking yourself questions much more um, immediately than you mm-hmm. may otherwise do so with like a read and write kind of model based off of a reading list. So. I'm not mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned uh, just a little bit earlier, you came into the program uh, with a lot of different questions you wanted to ask. Yes. So in addition to uh, preparing for your comprehensive exams and your own thesis research, are you involved? Are you still involved in some of these other side projects with uh, kids and technology? Yes. Uh, I have to give a shout out to Lori for being the coolest PI and such a diverse uh, thinker. She's so innovative. Um, she always, like me, has a bunch of questions um, that she wants to explore. So with Lori um, and some fabulous researchers across campus, um, again, very interdisciplinary uh, teamwork at hand over in the Faculty of Health Sciences and Nursing. Um, we have started to work on, again, similar projects with kids in tech. 
Um, for example, we have a study going on right now that's called the transition to parenting. So we're in p- partner with Fanshawe and we're looking at new parents, whether they're trying to get pregnant are already with child um, or are in that postpartum phase to see what apps support their pregnancy journey and their transition to parenting. Um, A second study that we are almost finished uh, is a scoping review of looking at the ethics of digital data collection in research with minors. So digital data collection, again, any kind of data that's collected through digital means, smartphone, um, some kind of like phone tracker, um, what you may post online. Uh, So that one is uh, being headed by myself, um, a bioethicist, a computer scientist, a lawyer, absolutely brilliant, stellar folks that I can't believe I get to work with. Um, So we're taking a very multi-perspectival approach to kids in tech, which you know, as a program of research, I think we're going to have a lot to offer the academic community. So, again, cool. I'm not mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for these projects, um, is there any way for sort of the wider public to follow along with your progress? Or is there any way uh, people can perhaps get involved in the research itself? Uh, absolutely. So to talk uh, a bit about this transition to parenting study, if you mm-hmm. or someone you know is of this transition in phase, um, please check out our Facebook page, capital I, capital P, Parenting. So I Parenting. that's our Facebook page. Um, our Twitter handle is lowercase I, capital P, so I Parenting Study. And we also have the hashtag I Parenting Study trending as well. So our second wave of surveys will be up and running shortly. So if you want to keep checking that back, um, Also, you can visit my FIMS profile page because I will have all those links there. So uh, if you want to hit up www.fims, all lowercase, F-I-M-S dot U-W-O dot C-A slash people slash profiles slash my name, as you'll see on the podcast, dot HTML. That would be lovely. And I appreciate (laughs) that. (laughs) All right. We'll have all those URLs in... um social media accounts in our show notes perfect awesome cool so uh what what you know we're coming to the end here almost uh what what kind of apps do you use what would you not necessarily endorse we're not going to do necessarily any endorsements here but in regards to health information what apps do you use personally so i guess i'm just going to advertise for this brand it's called the sweat app It's a hot pink app that you can download, and it focuses on women's fitness. Um, (laughs) But they are personal trainers from all around the world, from the U.S., from Australia, um, from Greece, I believe. Um, It's been a really great tool for me. So for uh, all the folks out there who may want to give it a try, I fully endorse it. Yeah. Full endorsement. Absolutely. Yeah, I should get paid for this. No, I think you have to be like over 18 to use it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Something like that. Well, if anyone from Sweat is listening, uh, you've got a potential brand ambassador right here. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So Danica will be waiting to hear from you. Yeah. All right. And that will be all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for uh, coming on to the show, Danica. No, thank you for having me. This was lovely. All right. So this has been GradCast, the official radio and podcast show of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. I've been your host today. My name is Yiman Chen. And I've been your co-host, Ariel Frame. 
All right, and Danica Faka from the Department of Health and Information Science has been our guest. Uh, this episode was produced by Connor Chado. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or on Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on the radio at CHRW 94.9 FM Radio Western. You can also find all of our episodes at our website, gradcast.ca. Or subscribe on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. We also have some videos up on YouTube if you'd like to check us out. Thanks again, and have a great night.